Welcome to another installment of the Convivial Society, a bi-monthly newsletter exploring the place of technology in contemporary culture. What you're listening to is basically an audio version of the main essay that goes out with each installment of the newsletter. And the essay in this case will be a reflection on the work of Simone Weil, Ivan Illich, and Albert Borgman on the question of human needs, human flourishing, and the good society. What do human beings need? In 1943, Simone Weil, the French philosopher and activist who was living in England at the time, was tasked by the Free French government with writing a report exploring how French society might be revitalized after its liberation from Nazi Germany. Despite suffering from debilitating headaches and generally poor health, Weil completed her work during a remarkable burst of activity. She died later that year at the age of 34. The report was published in 1949. The first English translation appeared in 1952 as The Need for Roots, Prelude Towards the Declaration of Duties Towards Mankind. I was immediately struck by how Vey began her report. In the midst of a global cataclysm of unprecedented scope and scale, tasked with drawing up plans for the renewal of society, she begins by arguing for the primacy of human obligations rather than human rights. The very first sentence reads, the notion of obligations comes before that of rights, which is subordinate and relative to the former. Quite the claim coming from a French thinker, as she is well aware. As Vey sees it, rights are ineffective so long as no one recognizes a corresponding obligation, and obligations are always grounded in our common humanity. Duty toward the human being as such, that alone is eternal, she writes. Our obligations toward our fellow human beings, Vey goes on to argue, correspond to the list of such human needs as are vital analogous to hunger. Some of these needs are physical, of course, housing, clothing, security, etc. But Vey identified another set of needs, which she described as having to do not with the physical side of life, but with what she calls its moral side. The non-physical needs form a necessary condition of our life on this earth. In her view, if these needs are not satisfied, we fall little by little into a state more or less resembling death. And while she acknowledges that these needs are much more difficult to recognize and to enumerate than are the needs of the body, she believes everyone recognizes they exist. I'm inclined to believe that Vey is right about this. As she suggests, everyone knows that there are forms of cruelty which can injure a man's life without injuring his body. Vey goes on to call for an investigation into what these vital needs might be. They should be enumerated and defined, and she warns they must never be confused with desires, whims, fancies, and vices. Finally, she believes that the lack of any such investigation forces governments, even when their intentions are honest, to act sporadically and at random. Naturally, the rest of the work is an attempt to provide just such an enumeration and discussion of these vital needs, 
with the express purpose of supplying a foundation for the rebuilding of French society. She deals briefly with a set of 14 such needs before turning to a longer discussion of rootedness and uprootedness, which opens with this well-known claim. To be rooted is perhaps the most important and least recognized need of the human soul. I like to pair this claim with Hannah Arendt's discussion of loneliness, alienation, superfluousness, which in the origins of totalitarianism, she identifies as ideal conditions for the emergence of a totalitarian regime. Under the most diverse conditions and disparate circumstances, Arendt wrote, we watch the development of the same phenomena, homelessness on an unprecedented scale, rootlessness to an unprecedented depth. Combining they and Arendt, then, we might say that to the degree that the need for rootedness, which is to say a sense of belonging in relatively stable communities, goes unfulfilled, to that same degree human beings become vulnerable to destructive political regimes. My aim here, however, is not to discuss the merits of Vey's particular enumeration of these vital needs. Rather, it is simply to recommend that we too undertake a similar radical analysis, recalling, of course, that our word radical comes to us from radix, the Latin word for roots. While our circumstances in 2020 are certainly not Vey's in 1943, it does appear to me that we are nonetheless in a time of cascading crisis and that our most urgent need is to figure out not how to shore up the old order, but rather to start something anew. Perhaps a renewed humanism, premised not upon human exceptionalism and self-sufficiency, but rather upon human needs, interdependence, and mutual obligations. You'll not be surprised to learn that this talk about needs immediately brings to my mind the work of Ivan Illich, who devoted a considerable amount of his intellectual labors to the task of exploring the sources of what we might think of as, from his perspective, our manufactured neediness. It is not, of course, that Illich denied that human beings have needs. It was that, from his point of view, many of the needs we think we have are, in fact, deliberately cultivated in us by a techno-economic institutional order that excels at nothing so much as the generation of dependent consumers. So, for example, we may very well have a need to learn, but why exactly has that need been transmuted into the need for schooling? In the opening of Deschooling Society, Illich claims that the hidden curriculum of schooling is dependency on the institution of the school. The pupil, Illich writes, is thereby schooled to confuse teaching with learning, grade advancement with education, a diploma with competence, and fluency with the ability to say something new. The student's imagination, Illich continued, is schooled to accept service in the place of value, medical treatment is mistaken for health care, social work for the improvement of community life, police protection for safety, military poise for national security, and the rat race for productive work. Illich then explains how he will show that the institutionalization of values leads inevitably to physical pollution, social polarization, 
and psychological impotence, three dimensions in a process of global degradation and modernized misery. Interestingly, for our purposes, Illich goes on to write about how this process of degradation is, quote, accelerated when non-material needs are transformed into demands for commodities, when health, education, personal mobility, welfare, or psychological healing are defined as the result of services or treatments. The line to tuck away, along with Bayes' observations, is the one about non-material needs being transformed into demands for commodities. If Bay is right about the vital importance of what she calls moral needs, or the needs of the soul, then what Illich identifies is, of course, a pernicious and perverse hijacking of these needs. Pernicious because of the transmutation of vital non-physical needs into the need for commodities. Perverse because the nature of the commodification is such that these vital needs are never satisfied. Indeed, having been institutionalized along the lines Illich identifies, they must be forever perpetuated so as to justify the ongoing existence of the institution in question. Consider for a moment a more concrete and contemporary example. Why does anyone need a ring camera? Or better, whose interests are best served by a ring camera? The most obvious answer is Amazon. If there is a problem that Ring is supposed to solve, it is the problem of packages being stolen from people's front porches, a problem that arises when our consumption is increasingly funneled through Amazon. But of course, Ring presents itself as more than just the surveillance arm of a multi-billion dollar corporation deployed to your front door. It hijacks the human need for security or safety and transmutes it into a need for Ring. It is chiefly the needs of Amazon that are being met, particularly given the way that Ring allows Amazon to also profit from partnerships with police departments. And, as Illich would have readily predicted, this dependence on a corporate product comes at the additional cost of alienating neighbors, eroding social trust, and replacing mutual interdependence with a state of perpetual suspicion. By contrast, in Tools for Conviviality, Illich wrote that society must be reconstructed to enlarge the contribution of autonomous individuals and primary groups to the total effectiveness of a new system of production designed to satisfy the human needs which it also determines. In other words, individuals and groups ought to be able to determine their needs rather than have their needs determined or manufactured for them. But, as Illich went on to argue, the institutions of industrial society do just the opposite. As the power of machines increases, the role of persons more and more decreases to that of mere consumers. Nowhere is this reduction of the person to the status of mere consumer more evident than in the ruthless efficiency of Amazon's near total enclosure of our lives within a network of self-perpetuating and automated consumption, one within which we come to increasingly function as a mere node rather than the autonomous consumer we imagine ourselves to be. 
But Illich saw in our dependence on institutions that dictate to us the nature of our neediness more than just a failure of personal autonomy and self-realization. The question of justice was also at stake. At present, Illich observed, people tend to relinquish the task of envisaging the future to a professional elite. They transfer power to politicians who promise to build up the machinery to deliver this future. They accept a growing range of power levels in society when inequality is needed to maintain high outputs. Political institutions themselves become draft mechanisms to press people into complicity with output goals. What is right comes to be subordinated to what is good for institutions. Justice is debased to mean the equal distribution of institutional wares. Illich is here suggesting the existence of a counterfeit form of justice, one which we might gloss as a matter of becoming equally dependent on institutions and their commodities. Perhaps it will seem like a stretch, but the contemporary example that leaps to my mind is the belief in some quarters that the problem with facial recognition technology is simply that it seems, in its present iteration, to be especially biased against people of color as if the tool would be just and good as soon as it was calibrated so that people of color were equally legible to its gaze. In other words, equal access to fundamentally degrading institutions and their products is not justice. Elsewhere in Tools for Conviviality, Illich wrote about three distinct values, survival, justice, and self-defined work, which were in his view fundamental to any convivial society, however different one such society might be from another in practice, institutions, or rationale. As he went on to explain, the conditions for survival are necessary but not sufficient to ensure justice. People can survive in prison. The conditions for just distribution of industrial outputs are necessary but not sufficient to promote convivial production. People can be equally enslaved by their tools. A post-industrial society must and can be so constructed that no one person's ability to express him or herself in work will require as a condition the enforced labor or the enforced learning or the enforced consumption of another. There's a three-tiered framework here that will have a Janus function at this juncture in the essay. Illich argues that what he calls a convivial society, which we can think of simply as a distinctly Illichian way of speaking about a good society, involves not only equal access to commodities, however broadly we conceive of them, but something more. This something more, as we see in the paragraph just quoted, Illich ties very closely to work, work that is free, creative, and meaningful. In this regard, Illich recalls Simone Weil, who, though approaching the matter from her own deeply religious perspective, believed that all the problems of technology and economy should be formulated functionally by conceiving of the best possible condition for the worker. It would be worth exploring how Weil and Illich each conceive of work as a condition of human flourishing. But it is enough for my purposes here to note that they both understand that a good society would furnish its citizens with more than just a steady stream of endless diversions. 
But Illich's three-tiered schema not only recalls Vey in its high regard for meaningful work, it also recalls another threefold schema offered by the philosopher Albert Borgman in his 1984 work, Technology and the Character of Contemporary Life, a significant and still highly relevant book that doesn't get the attention it deserves. In his discussion of technology and democracy, Borgman also puts forth a three-tiered vision of society. The constitutional or formally just society, the fair or substantively just society, and the good society. In the formally just society, all citizens are assured of equal liberties by the Constitution and the legal code. But as Borgman notes, formal justice is compatible with inequality. I may have the right to do nearly everything, he adds, and yet the economic and cultural means to do next to nothing. Thus, the need for what Borgman calls substantive justice that accounts for economic arrangements and legislation, as well as civil rights and liberties. Yet, as Borgman puts it, a substantively just society can still yield a life that is indolent, shallow, and distracted. In other words, a substantively just society may still fail to be a good society, one which addresses the full range of human needs. Borgman believes that a substantively just society remains incomplete and is easily dispirited without a fairly explicit and definite vision of the good life. Further on, Borgman puts the distinctions this way. A constitutional society furnishes formal or vacuous equality of opportunity. A just society secures fair or substantive equality of opportunity. Whether we have a good society depends on the kind of opportunities that the society provides for its citizens. Perhaps another more contemporary example can help clarify Borgman's distinctions as I understand them. We can imagine a society, without a great deal of effort, in which the elderly routinely find themselves isolated, lonely, and lacking a sense of purpose. This society has developed robots and digital devices to care for the elderly and to keep them company. In a formally just society, all elderly citizens have the right to procure these consumer goods. In a substantively just society, all elderly citizens can afford to procure these goods or else they are supplied by the state. I trust, however, that you might agree with me in recognizing neither of these societies as good societies. Better we might grant that the elderly have a robot to keep them company or modern tools of communication to slake their loneliness given no other alternatives, but much better still that they be an integrated part of a multi-generational family or community in which they also supply in their turn and as they are able the needs of their children and, and grandchildren, retaining as a result their dignity, purpose, and joy. Borgman goes on to argue that liberal democracy is enacted as technology, by which he means that contrary to its avowed neutrality toward the nature of the good life, liberal democracy does not leave the question of the good life open, but answers it along technological lines. Furthermore, Borgman claims 
The theory of liberal democracy both needs and fears modern technology. It needs technology because the latter promises to furnish the neutral opportunities necessary to establish a just society and to leave the question of the good life open. It fears technology because technology may in fact deliver more than it had promised, namely a definite version of the good society and, more important yet, one which is good in a dubious sense. In other words, Borgman is arguing that the professed neutrality toward the good life that has traditionally ordered liberal democracies has in fact acted as a cover under which the advance of modern technology has smuggled in a distinct vision of the good life and one which may not be conducive either to democracy or to human flourishing. As Borgman saw it in the mid-1980s, while they differed as to how the fruits of economic growth should be distributed, both major American political factions understood such growth as an increase in productivity which yields more consumer goods. Echoing arguments we've already encountered, Borgman went on to argue that improved productivity entails a degradation of work and greater consumption leads to more distraction. Thus, in an advanced industrial country, a policy of economic growth promotes mindless labor and mindless leisure. I've assembled the work of these three writers because it seems to me that they are all circling around the similar set of concerns about human needs, work, technology, justice, and the good life. Their reflections make clear that these are interlocking realities which must be considered together. They also direct our attention to a more fundamental level of analysis which we do well to take up. I've argued in this newsletter and elsewhere that one of the salient features of digital culture is the rapid collapse of the ideals of neutrality and disinterested objectivity that have characterized modern liberal institutions. While this collapse will continue to be attended by varying degrees of turmoil and conflict, it may also provide us with an opportunity to examine more clearly some of the assumptions that have informed the way we think about the nature of a good life. And I would suggest that we do well to start, as Simone Weil did, with a consideration of the full range of human needs, clarified then by Ivan Illich's searching critique of the needs engendered in us by industrial and now digital institutions, and oriented toward a more robust vision of a good society as Albert Borgman urged us to imagine.